Welcome to On Olive Oil, hosted by Curtis Cord, the publisher of Olive Oil Times. Featuring 30-minute discussions with people throughout the world, sharing their unique perspectives on the ever-changing olive oil landscape. This week's guest is investigative author Tom Muller. And I've had people say, well, boy, that olive oil world, that certainly is a corrupt world. I just stopped buying olive oil. I buy something else. And I think, oh, no, no. You know, slap forehead with palm. Now, from New York City, here's Curtis Cord. With his groundbreaking article in The New Yorker, and then a critically acclaimed book, Extra Virginity, author Tom Muller has more than anyone else exposed the dark side of the olive oil business and the need for change. And not much has, with allegations of corruption and fraud in today's headlines continuing to turn people away confused and distrustful. We spoke with Tom at his home in Liguria. So you go to the supermarket in Dallas, Madrid, London or New Delhi, and you buy a bottle of extra virgin olive oil because you know it's the one that tastes the best. It's the healthiest for you and your family, and it's unrefined. And by that, I mean it hasn't undergone chemical or industrial processes. It is simply pressed fruit juice. You gladly pay more for your extra virgin olive oil because it's worth the money. But here's the simple truth. There is a very small chance that the oil you bring home is really extra virgin. Most likely, it's a lower grade like the others on the shelf you didn't choose, or it could be something far worse. It's been four years since the first release of investigative journalist Tom Muller's groundbreaking book, Extra Virginity, which enlightened readers to not just the fraud that goes on in the olive oil industry and its long, shady history, but also the rich culture, the extraordinary gift to all of us that is olive oil and the importance of making some changes. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Curtis. It's good to be here. Does it seem like four years? Boy, <laughs> when you said that, I could hardly believe it, actually. Uh, no, it doesn't. A great deal has happened. Uh, I'm not sure in which direction, but uh, four years is longer than I... I guess because it's ongoing, and it happens in waves in different countries, and I'm kind of seeing it seeing it serially as it happens in Italy, where I live, uh, in the States, where it's, the book first came out. So, But yeah, that's a surprising fact. The book and even your expose in The New Yorker that led to your book are still so widely cited. It has been an eye-opener for so many of us and serves as a reference to the challenges the olive oil industry needs to face before people get what what's rightfully their own, which is an extremely important and healthy food from a fruit grown throughout the world. I would think you must be satisfied with what, you, what you've done to bring to light this underbelly in the olive oil business and the corruption plaguing the food industry in general. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the danger with, with exposés is that a certain number of people just tune out that entire frequency. And I've had people say, well, boy, that olive oil world, that certainly is a corrupt world. I just stopped buying olive oil. I buy something else. And I think, oh, no, no, you know, slap forehead with palm. Um, but, um, but you know, if people can get also the incredible, and I, and I do, as a matter of fact, one time out of frustration, I did a, a page count. And, and it's something like 75% good news about olive oil 
and about the people who make the real stuff and so on, and about 25%, you know, bad news. And if people can hear the good and the bad, they will hear that it's really worth the extra energy, time, and and and, and learning um, to invested to to get the good stuff because it really is one of the world's great foods. Before we talk about what's going on today, looking back at the 2012 investigation by the U.S. International Trade Commission, which American producers lobbied for. Mm-hmm. Not, not only did I watch you testify in Washington before the commission, but I know investigators also interviewed you in Italy in the course of preparing their analysis. Do you think that was any kind of tipping point? And what impact do you think that $2 million report has had on the industry and the campaign for truth in labeling and trade? I, you know, it becomes a point of reference for anyone who wants to take on seriously um, the question of what do we do next? How are we going to improve enforcement? How are we going to improve truth and labeling? Uh, I am not uh, aware of very strong specific cases in which, you know, a major win has grown out of that report. But I I do get a sense. Well, you know, frankly, I was also heartened and impressed by the level of work, the level of detail um, that that the investigators showed. I mean, they really they didn't take my word for it. Uh, They didn't take anyone's word for it. They traveled widely. They questioned a bunch of people. They questioned people that I suggested they talk to, but also people who disagreed violently with me. Uh, that, that's all good. And uh, overall, I think that their report, it's balanced, it's smart, and well-informed. Um, it, it's going to be, now and in the future, a data point that is difficult. To, that will be difficult to ignore, I think. What do they do? Come to your town and sit down with you in a cafe or...? First, we talked on the phone, um, and then um, we met up in a couple of in a couple of places in Tuscany, and met, and went to tour some facilities. And I told them what I knew, and the owner told them a lot more. Um, so it was it was a kind of a field trip uh, for them. Um, I, I talked. They also introduced them to a uh, to an importer exporter who talked a lot about issues of of, of controls quality controls in in the EU and what happens um, when it enters the North American space and so on. So I I basically did the handoff to to experts. I mean, I wrote a book on the stuff, but I don't consider myself a real expert in any of the particular fields. But I am an expert on experts. I know everybody now (laughs) who, who is the world authority in any given thing, whether it's olive oil chemistry or, um, you know, tr- uh, food law or whatever. And, and so I am able to pass people off to, to the genuine authorities. And I did that in, in this case and also just kind of gave them a, a walking tour of certain areas which, where you can really see the impact of uh, certain trends, certain negative trends in, in the olive oil production in Italy um, and the abandonment of fields because people just simply can't make a living anymore. The investigation centered on the so-called competitiveness of the American olive oil industry in the context of world trade. Mm -hmm. And the takeaway from it was, well, no, we're kind of getting screwed over here. There are a lot of barriers and it's difficult for American producers to make their way with a lot of the inferior oils that are uh, subsidized oils that are being imported and that are on the shelves, many of them not as labeled. And uh, we've got to make some changes. So mm-hmm. do you think that uh, that th- it's going to lead to some concrete legislative action? 
<clears throat> that's a tough one. I mean, first of all, you need to have a body that is willing to apply any laws that you may have. Um, last take that I took on the FDA, uh, they very frankly and, and, and I think rather courageously said, we can't possibly take that on right now. Given our current staffing levels, given our current resources, we have an exponentially growing body of, of what is considered urgent, more urgent uh, issues to deal with. Uh, so uh, you need somebody who, to apply the laws. Then you need uh, better laws and clearer uh, truth in labeling. And, and, and the legislation obviously has to be tightened. But if you're ultimately going to have a dead letter law to begin with, I'm not sure that it wouldn't be better just to, to invest, it, invest more, at least on the part of uh, producers, growers, importers, honest ones, uh, in educating consumers. I mean, ultimately, I think that's what made the difference in wine, not some change in law, not even the methanol scandal, uh, despite the fact that some people will disagree with me there. But I do think that educating consumers ultimately is, what, is going to be what drives this. And as soon as two or three consumers in a given store go to the manager and say, look, this says extra virgin and says uh, that it was bottled three years ago. This is clearly rancid, clearly fusty. That's illegal. This is not extra virgin. I want my money back. That manager is going to say, A, oh, here's your money, and B, someone tell me about this now. I need to know more. Hmm. But until that happens, I, you know, so many laws are, are, are not worth the paper they're written on. And I'm, I'm not convinced uh, from what I've seen that a major change in, in legislation is, is going to be the answer. On January 14th, 2014, the New York Times published a sensational infographic titled Extra Virgin Suicide. Oh, yeah, yeah that was riddled with inaccuracies, and it mm. cited you as a source, Tom. I yeah, the, the source. I remember that well. I remember being jolted out of my winter slumber by the piece and, <laughs> and shocked enough to publish an opinion within hours denouncing the stereotypes and inaccuracies and lamenting the collateral damage that I thought the story would cause to ethical producers. Listeners can see the timeline of how the whole thing unfolded on Olive Oil Times. The author of the piece was Nicholas Blechman, a New York Times illustrator, not a reporter. And you, Tom, when it first came out, you congratulated him with a tweet at first. But then you read the words, then you read the words closely and the emails started flying. Then you quickly came out to condemn the piece, saying that it was loosely based on an interview and your book. You said you were, in fact, dismayed that you were cited in the story. Blechman started getting hit with tweets and emails, too, at one point saying, I'm just an illustrator, leaving everyone to wonder how the New York Times could publish something so disparaging without any writer on record. And then finally, on January 29th, 15 days after the story published and all the damage was done and no one visited the page anymore, the Times made the corrections. They might seem to some like small corrections, but to many they were quite important. And they published a redaction at the end of the infographic, it is there today, in one of the smallest font sizes I have ever seen online. And, And this is what it says. The graphic incorrectly cited Tom Muller as the source of the information. While Mr. Muller's blog and other writings were consulted in preparation of the graphic, several of his findings were misinterpreted. 
Tom, I'm sure you've had your fair share of angry emails over the years, but that must have been a tough week for you. Maybe because the piece was calling out more than just the bad guys, making lazy generalizations that you take pains to avoid in your journalism. Well, it was it was a bad week, as you say. I mean, I first I I knew that Nicholas Blackman was working on this because he had called me many months before and we had a brief chat. Um, he had been at the uh, American Academy in Rome, and I was down there, and we talked about this and that, and we talked a little bit about olive oil, and then he said he was going to read my book, and he wanted to do a project, and I said, that sounds great. Um, then I heard, I think it was via Twitter, um, several people said, hey, great, uh, great work on the New York Times thing, and I thought, oh, and saying it to me, uh, and I thought, oh, what's going on there? And so I quickly flicked to the New York Times side and I looked at the graphics and they were quite eye-catching. I, I think he is a wonderful illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, quite eye-catching, quite clever. I, I disagreed with a few things, but who, who doesn't? I mean, the skull and crossbones with olives was kind of a punch in the gut, but <laughs> you know, um, that's that's creative license, right? And so I quickly tweeted to, to let people know, hey, this, this actually isn't me. This is Nicholas Blackman. Great job. Then I started reading the words. I didn't even realize there were words at first. I was just looking at the pictures, and the words really didn't capture, as you say. They they conflate a whole bunch of different things. They they identify uh, one kind of fraud as another. They talk about huge percentage of adulteration when, in fact, that's really not a huge percentage at this point. Um, and and various other things. So yeah, but I felt first of all like an idiot for having you know said, "Hey, great work," and then having to go back on that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then needless to say, I was cited as the source, Nicholas Blechman, who was really the creative force behind this from beginning to end. He was, he was illustrator. So it really sounded like I was the one who came up with this notion and gave it to him when I was done. And he came up with the, you know, clever visuals and that's just not the way it went down at all. So, um, I think it's a very unfortunate combination of, well, uh, it's a wonderful visual, uh, but I, I think that even the visuals are a bit of, uh, well, an overstatement. But the words were really problematic. Uh, I'm super disappointed in the New York Times for not doing the right thing. First of all, in fact-checking, and second of all, in, in retraction or correction, um, as you say, 15 days is, is a shocking amount of time to let it go by. You know, the problem with this is that when you have enough doubt in a market, um, you open yourself up to uh, misunderstandings and attacks of this kind, um, even accidental ones. And I genuinely think this was a completely in good faith thing. He thought he was getting it right, and he thought he was telling a, uh, a, an accurate and clever story. And, mm. and visually, it was quite vivid, quite striking. Um, but if there's enough doubt about what's in those bottles and you hear fraud, 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 and that's part of what I feel like the olive oil industry, whether it's importers or national producers, one of the critical things is to dispel doubt. I mean, you really have to step up. You really, for a period of time, have to go the extra mile to prove to people that this is the, the real McCoy. And I feel like, unfortunately, it's price over quality so often. It's important for people to understand that the vast majority of oil that's consumed in the United States, but also, frankly, around the Mediterranean, was not produced uh, by the same people it was bottled by. The names that you read on the labels are just that, labels. Uh, they were probably bought and sold decades, if not <laughs> a century before. And um, the actual makers of the oil, who knows who they are? Um, that's part of the doubt that um, the New York Times 
uh, infographic kind of uh, played on played on exactly I think that's the right word um, everyone knows that there's some slippery business going on here in this olive oil world and so let's make it you know a little more fun and and until people really stand, people and being the people in the industry stand up and say look we stand behind a hundred percent product we are really for the consumer then that kind of thing is going to happen now and then yeah well what plagues the industry more than anything anything else is misinformation about the product in one yeah. form or another leads to to more wreckage a few weeks ago in turin as a matter of fact a prosecutor announced an investigation that arose when it was discovered that some of the biggest supermarket brands were not extra virgin, but instead they were virgin grade. The difference being that there were some taste defects in the tested samples. Some people might think, so is that all? They didn't taste perfect? It's not like it was motor oil, and the prosecutor is making this big announcement of a criminal fraud investigation. But there's much more to it than that, isn't there, Tom? Yeah, the law on olive oil has a chemical and a taste component, and they are of equal importance. Uh, in other words, if you pass a chemical but fail the taste, you still get downgraded, and your, your product is still not, in, in the case of extroversion, is not extroversion if there's one taste flaw. The reason that the legislators put that in, and it believe me, did not go in overnight. It was decades of work um, and development of the sensory testing was because it's very easy to fiddle the chemistry and extraordinarily difficult to fiddle the uh, sensory. And, and sensory ultimately, because of that, is the best indication of whether you're really getting fresh squeezed olive juice, which is extra virgin olive oil, or something inferior to that. And inferior can be with a very minor taste defect or several major taste flaws, uh, you know, rancid, uh, mold, things that are really unhealthy. They can be a very, very subtle lack of fruitiness. I mean, we're talking about this, some things that can be extraordinarily subtle and other things that are just hit you like a sledgehammer. Um, and, you know, but if you're spending uh, 30 or 40% more for extra virgin, you deserve to get what's on the label. And, and once upon a time, I mean, not that long ago, on the shelves, you would see virgin oil and extra virgin oil. And I'm all for that. I mean, it's like wine. I mean, you can get a tetra pack of cooking wine and no one pretends that it's going to be Grand Cru. You use it for cooking or if you want to drink it, go ahead, pop a straw in there and go to it. But you're not going to be fooled um, about uh, what you're buying. In olive oil, now that nowadays you never see virgin on the shelves. It's all extra virgin, super extra virgin, uh, you know. Hmm. And that's, I mean, that's both for consumers to make sure they're getting the good stuff and it's and the healthy stuff and the tasty stuff, but it's also for producers um, who, you know, some are going to extraordinarily, extraordinary lengths and a great deal of expense to make great olive oil and they get to put extra virgin on there. And unfortunately, they're being undercut by folks who are sweeping it up off the ground and, and deodorizing it and mixing it and blending it and selling it as extra virgin for um, uh, a fifth the price. Big olive oil companies would love to do away with the taste tests in favor of the other analytic methods that you mentioned. They said that the tasting panels are subjective and tasters often contradict themselves. Why are tasting panels in the crosshairs of big oil? And is it so important to have human sensory analysis be part of the extra virgin classification process? After all, machines do everything else these days, don't they? 
Uh, machines uh, would be the ideal solution here if we could get someone to, to invent the right machine and then get someone to set it to the proper specifications. Our olfactory equipment is far more sensitive than anything science has produced so far. Hmm. And if we're looking at matters of taste, whether you like something or don't like something, do you prefer more bitter or more pungent, that's completely subjective. If you're looking at the presence or absence of a given taste flaw, uh, or a given sensory flaw, I should say, and we're talking about rancid, we're talking about musty, we're talking about mold, um, these things are yes or no. Um, sensory science, um, food science, is taught in universities. It's, a, it's an honest-to-goodness science. And the decades of hard work that have gone into developing the taste panel um, and the statistical analysis that goes into processing the work of a taste panel is pretty much bulletproof. It's, in my view, not at all subjective. <laughs> and, and again, the reason that this was put into the law is because it's very easy to fiddle the chemistry. Hmm. And frankly, the people who set the chemical parameters are usually, and in many cases, the same people, the same top chemists who work at the top olive oil companies. Hmm. And they, for, you know, for, uh, for very good reason, because they know a hell of a lot about olive oil. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but there's an inherent conflict of interest there. And sometimes it's absurd. Uh, the taste test uh, cannot be fiddled. There are problems with the taste test. I mean, problems having to do with just logistics, doability. How many taste samples can a given panel do in a, in a day, in a week, in a month? How much does that cost? I mean, I'm not saying that it's a perfect system. As you said earlier, uh, if we could get a machine that would do this objectively and <laughs> somehow make sure that the people who are programming that machine had the right intentions, that would be the best best case scenario. No one would question the objectivity of a machine. Besides seeing extra virgin on a label when it really isn't, another thing you often see on a label that is untrue is made in Italy. Hmm. Is made in Italy meaning less as time goes by? Spain is making some pretty great olive oil. A lot of other places are too. French wine was eventually hit with a reality check, as were other famous brands. Will we start to see an end to the premium people are willing to pay for made in Italy? Or in other words, will substance eventually prevail over style? I think unless uh, Italy as a country stands up and says, look, this is, it's time for a change here. It's time to clear our names. Then absolutely, um, substance is going to uh, trump style. Uh, sooner or later, people are going to say, you know, this stuff. Well, first of all, they're going to understand that what a bottle that says made in Italy uh, especially packed in Italy, bottled in Italy, that is absolutely a scam. It's to trick people into thinking that the olives were harvested and, and grown in Italy, and that in most cases is not the case. I mean, last year Italy produced, what was it, 250,000 tons? I mean, a tiny, tiny fraction of what Spain, even on a bad year, produced. How much olive oil came out of Italy last year? I'm betting it was more or less the same. Why is that? Because 78 or 80 percent of it was imported from Spain, Tunisia, and various other places that produce a lot more oil and simply, um, you know, had a sticker change um, and a flag change. What does made in Italy mean anymore? Or at least what does bottled and packed in Italy mean? Uh, very, very little. And if you're a savvy consumer, it's more like an insult. Um, it, it's more like uh, someone is trying to take you for a ride than to actually sell you an honest product. 
So Australia adopts its own standards. South Africa follows. California has its own standards now, hoping the rest of this country will eventually follow its lead. The IOC is always working on its own version. And there are so many special interests at play that the prospects for the different camps working together seem pretty slim, don't they? I think it's difficult. I think you have, on the one hand, you have uh, a massive industry that's working on a commodity food and lowest common denominator in quality and lowest price. And on the other, in certain groups, you have people who are saying, look, we have excellent oil that we make ourselves. Why should we have unfair competition from cheap, low-grade imports? Um, the problem is that the consumer, once again, is caught in this crossfire of information and misinformation, uh, which is a theme that we've come back to again and again during this conversation, misinformation. I think it's what Australia, what South Africa, what in certain, to a certain extent California has done uh, is very important in raising or lowering the parameters, raising the quality requirements for the chemistry um, uh, now, exactly how to communicate that to the average consumer who walks into a store and won't even be able to see that information, that's another question. And that's one where I think um, some government body uh, taking an enlightened view of the consumer rather than special interest groups uh, or industries um, could really play a big role. Whether they will or not, I don't know. Well, we've seen some of that. For example, Spain and Portugal have banned the use of refillable olive oil cruets. Restaurants need to put branded bottles on the tables now. In England, retailers can't sell olive oils from bulk containers or fusti. Mm. While, and while many see the logic behind moves like these, do they seem oddly after the fact to you? Well, you, you have to guarantee what's in the bottle first. Um, I think that, that one of the exciting new developments that's happened in Italy and is starting to happen in other places is is investigators are walking into supermarkets and taking bottles off the shelves and testing them, which is kind of a new thing. Um, that's been done by individuals in the past, and they've been slapped with lawsuits. Uh, the the you know investigators who actually walk into a supermarket and say, "Okay, what? Show me what you got. Uh, what's really in that bottle?" That's that's a major step. And then naming the names of the people who don't come up to to standard. That's happened in Spain. It's happening in Italy. And I think that's that's the kind of action that really is required, um, because frankly, if, if it's bad oil that goes into a restaurant, uh, it doesn't really help your consumer much. Uh, you know, the seal <laughs> that protects bad oil is 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 not worth the plastic it's made out of. Who should enforce standards in the U.S.? Well, the FDA is charged with that, um, and they have the the know-how to do it. They have the people. Uh, that could be brought up to snuff very, very quickly. I just don't think at this point there are the resources, and behind the lack of resources is a lack of political will. Um, sadly, many industries don't want to have the FDA poking into their private business. They want to be able to do what they want to do when they want to do it, and that means that the American consumer, the American food consumer, uh, is in many cases left uh, pretty much exposed uh, to various levels of dishonesty. Seems like the U.S. and its agencies will always have bigger problems, perhaps. Well, there certainly are bigger problems. And, I, you know, um, several people in the <laughs> over the years have said, olive oil, that's kind of nice. Boy, what a first world problem. Right. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, if you make olive oil or if you love olive oil, it's not a first world problem. It's a, it's a real, you know, quality of life problem. 
Uh, and it's and it's uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we see on labels of all foods. So I think it's it's more than a first world problem, but there are bigger problems. I mean, you know, when you have people dying of of, of massive um, salmonella outbreak or or um, botulism or or other you know bioterrorism threats and so on, I understand that the FDA does have a number of other issues that they need to address. Uh, having said that, again, this is a paradigm food. This is a symbolic food, both for the Mediterranean and for America. You know, my mother was prescribed a Mediterranean diet, and I said, "That sounds good." You know, it's kind of, did did the doctor tell you anything about which olive oils to to choose? Oh no, no, no. Uh, you know, it's fine to talk about health and and longevity and so on, but if you don't go into the details of exactly what raw materials, what ingredients you're using. Again, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. It seems like in the face of the lack of enforcement, various groups have stepped up efforts to provide consumer confidence in the form of quality seals, be it a designation of origin like a DOP, seals like California Extra Virgin or the North American Olive Oil Association, or programs like QV Extra or Extra Virgin Alliance. Even the USDA has a monitoring program, which still has just one participating company. None of these programs seem to have the muscle to break through to consumers on a wide scale, which begs the question, wouldn't it be great if the seal extra virgin olive oil had enough credibility on its own? That's exactly it. I mean, we already have a pretty good definition. We already have uh, the, the basis of, you know, a strong legal standard of excellent food. Uh, we have decades of experience in how to determine how good or how bad that stuff is. We need people to enforce it. Um, I happen to think a lot of uh, undertakings like the Extra Virgin Alliance. I know uh, the people who run that, Alexander Deveren and Paul Miller, very well, and they have the interests of great oil at heart. I don't know how many people they're going to be able to reach. Um, and I personally would give them a big megaphone, but I don't ha I'm not in the megaphone business. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that at the end of the day, uh, people have proposed extra, extra virgin. They were proposed, I mean, it, we're, we're really getting to be silly here, I think, in terms of uh, simply not applying what we have in front of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then taking into account science. Um, we have good science that tells us a lot about what is healthy oil, olive oil, and what is less healthy olive oil. And it tracks very, very tightly to sensory analysis and to chemical analysis. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> we have a good definition uh, of extra virgin olive oil, um, several, and I think the, the, the tighter the better in terms of health. It's problematic to determine uh, where the consumer is going to get his or her most reliable and most useful information, but clearly the health aspect is one of the key uh, drivers of, of change. I understand there's a 60 Minutes episode airing in the near future that our listeners might not want to miss. Yes, I think it should be very interesting. Uh, they're doing a, um, a, a pretty hard-hitting show on olive oil and other Italian foods and agromafia or mafia involvement in food production in Italy. And I think it should be a good show. Well, we'll be watching. Tom, it's been very interesting. Thank you. Curtis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. On Olive Oil is produced in New York by Olive Oil Times. 
the world's leading olive oil publication. To listen to past episodes, visit onoliveoil.com. Thank you.